I believe some of you may have already listened to my podcast and episode on top 10 financial mistakes made by brand new grads. Today, we're going to talk about top 10 mistakes made by mid-career physicians. And very soon, you will have an episode on top 10 mistakes made by late-career physicians. Believe it or not, physicians make financial mistakes during their entire career. This is not unusual. It's uh, things that happen to most of us, even though we are not physicians. So this applies to nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, accountants, even accountants, uh, lawyers, dentists, everybody, really. But I think uh, physicians make a lot of them and most of them and very frequently because we lack the financial literacy. And hopefully this podcast will correct part of that. So I hope you guys enjoy it. In most cases, tax strategies don't have variable outcomes. They have very predictable outcomes. And so if you don't have an accountant that you trust, that's a mistake to be made because those are the, you know, sort of the top, if you will, uh, in terms of the list of things you want to do what the accountant will bring to the table are always going to be things that have very little risk. Um, and they're going to be, uh, for the most part, common sense, i.e. not particularly complicated or, or anything like that. So if you are a DIYer, don't let that mentality dictate your financial planning. So let's elaborate on that. You know, if you are prone now to putting off the decisions about what you need to do at the end of your life, you're likely going to be prone to doing it the entire time through your life. And therefore you will procrastinate on some of these decisions for quite a long time. How's my financial health doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for Healthcare Professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. So, uh, how you everybody, or how's everybody? Welcome back to the How Is My Financial Health Doc podcast. And uh, today is a real pleasure for me to have our good friend, Mr. Jamie List. Jamie, uh, how are you today? I am uh, well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me back. Um, and I look forward to this more qualitative uh, conversation that we kind of brainstormed about um, that we're going to chat about today. Very good. Jamie, uh, we've done a few podcasts together, but I I think we still need to introduce you properly. Let the audience know what you do. I'm Jamie List. I'm a portfolio manager uh, and financial planner, a wealth advisor. Uh, I think you know there's lots of different names that you can put to what we do. Um, I work with, uh, with our group, Baron Capital Partners, and we're related to an investment dealer, Align Capital Partners. And um, 
And we focus on clients who have net worths in and around the one to 10 million, which is referred to as the emerging affluent uh, section. So people who have been lucky enough to accumulate, you know, a good amount of wealth, um, but still have to think about planning and understanding where things go and, uh, and how to really kind of maximize all of the tricks, if you will, and of the trade to, to get your, your wealth to where you're comfortable, where you can feel like you're not worried, et cetera, about it on the, on the, over the long term. The most important point you met you you said there is that you help your clients plan, and that's very important because I think what we're going to be talking today is really surrounding proper planning, uh, because today we're talking about top ten mistakes made by mid-career physicians, and a lot of what we're going to be talking about really is preventable. I mean, these mistakes are preventable with proper planning with specialists and experts like yourself. So we'll talk about having a financial plan and why it's important. But when you go through the rigor of planning, and there's a bunch of planning uh, sort of recommendations we're making today that, that say, you know, you got to go and ask some hard questions and get to some hard answers. Those tend to fall out positively to other things. So, you know, we, we're going to talk about the importance of having a will. Those questions and answers that you have with that professional when you go through it with a, with a you know, a, a, the right lawyer, you know, you're going to learn more about what you need to do to guarantee and 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 um, succeed in your financial uh, and wealth accumulation. So, so planning is, you know, capital P planning is financial planning, but planning in general is always a positive way to begin any project. Um, and in this case, the project lasts your entire career and then some, um, possibly into even your family's legacy. So. Um, it's a it's a big project. Now let's try to define mid career physician. What does that mean? You know, nowadays physicians are starting their career later and later because, you know, I have colleagues who, you know, started practicing when they are in their almost early forties. Right, that's early careers. So imagine that for some of them. Yeah. Um. So when that when we talk about mid career. It's not so much an age, but more where you are in your career journey. So let's define a little bit that. I started my career early, and so I'm sort of in mid-career. And so this is how I see myself as a mid-career physician. I'll describe myself in, in, in a certain sense. And then you let me know when you're seeing physicians in mid-career, does it fit this type of profile as well? So typically, you know, so I've been in practice for you know, let's just call it somewhere between 15 and 20 some odd years. So I would say that that's mid-career. I have established my practice. I'm actually getting better at what I'm doing. I, th I think I know what I'm doing. And I feel like I have mastered the skill of my profession. Uh, I feel comfortable in my skin. I feel comfortable with my medical practice. And, you know, things are in on cruise control. And on the personal side, I'm married. Uh, I've got children, young children. I wouldn't say too old. So young children, maybe between the age of, let's say, five to maybe possibly 13, 14. I've, uh, I have a house. I'm paying down my mortgage. Maybe I have already paid down all my mortgage. It's possible. I am thinking of you know, savings for, for my children. And I'm starting really to have enough money to say that, 
yeah, that that part of building my life, building my professional life and my personal life, that part of building is like almost done. Like I'm I'm comfortable enough that I'm looking at the next part of my life, which is accumulating, uh, accumulating savings and sort of looking into the future and planning for my retirement at some point. I'm not quite sure if my mindset is there yet, but I'm starting to think about it. So this is where I am personally. And I think that speaks to a mid-career physician. What what do you think about that, Jamie? When you when you speak to your clients, what, what you consider to be mid-career physicians, are those the qualities, the traits, or are there more that you've also encountered? A lot of the, I'm going to say qualitative things you discussed um, and qualitative in a way, having had children, you've, you bought your house and it's not necessarily, but likely maybe your second house or the house, at least, you know, you're going to be in for a while. So I would say that, that, that mid career would be typified by the, this sort of a, this, this clarity and stability of, you know, where your career is at, where you're frankly, where your income's coming from, you're established, you've settled into a, a practice or a group or an institution that, that, that is going to keep you, let's say, uh, for a while. Um, <clears throat> I would also say that with all those things being present, one of the things that would be very important, which would sort of bring you forward into that mid-career is having a sense of where the future is going to end you up. And so if you've kind of got all those and you're really not sure where you are, sorry, if you've got all those hallmarks of, you know, of a, of a mid-career, so age, stage, so to speak, but you're, you're a little bit behind, then you sort of teetering, if you will, on where you can go. And I think some of the things we're going to talk about today would would be the kind of topics that will open somebody's eyes to, okay, now I can see where the next stage is. I can see how I can prepare myself well for the final stage, which is, you know, not pre-retirement, but but really a very mature and a very um, sort of well-developed career that is doing things, let's say, you know, late in my career, I'm going to be wanting to do things, going to want to be doing things that are outside, let's say, my core skills that I've learned and have become interested in, and then I can explore further, whether that's, you know, a, a, a new, you know, line of business that we're doing or something along those lines. I don't know what that is, but it's somewhere where I'm at the point where I can then explore. So I would say early career, mid-career, late career, those are easily typified by stages in life. But in terms of what we're talking about today in financial knowledge, if you're in the middle of your career, and you don't have a sense of where this career is taking you financially, then this, I think it will be helpful to kind of bring that forward. Okay, well, that I mean, that is a good segue to dive into the different things that we do as physicians that we may not be doing appropriately. Or I would say maybe not uh, the, with the most efficiency. So let's start with the first one. I think we I think we put it there as the first one. Now, Jamie, when we came out with this list, did we come up with this list based on priority or it was just a, a brainstorming session? Because we put it up to from one to 10 and I can't remember. Is it based on, on yeah, priority? I mean, we, we, we did have a bit of fun doing this. And so my recollection is it was really kind of, is this more train of thought, but these first two are a pair, right? And yeah. they came out quite quickly, which was that the, the mistakes that are made by by physicians is they they at the same time as a group do not listen to their accounts. So we'll call that number one. Yeah. 
So the mistake of not listening to the accountant. And then the second mistake that we came up with immediately after was they listened too much to accountants. And that is not to say that there's not value in that. So, so that's kind of, these, I remember these coming up to right out, right out of the gate and we're both laughing because, um, because they are two sides of the same sword or coin, however you want to look at it. Um, but yes, that's, that's how we did this sort of in order of what really popped in our heads. Um, and these were, were twin issues that I think everyone can get on top of and everyone can use the accounting profession really to their great benefit um, and just understand how to deploy that advice and that colleague properly in their financial well-being. So it came out really quickly when we came up, when we said, let's do a list. And these two came out really quickly for a reason. I think from from what you do and from your experience and what I, what I see as a coach, as a financial coach, I see these happening a lot, very frequently. So let's, let's just tell exactly what it is. So number one and number two are related, but number one is not listening to your accountant. So Jamie, let's elaborate on that. What did we mean by that when we came out with that answer? So, so look, I'm a financial advisor, portfolio manager. We have lots of tools at our disposal. And I have a really, you know, I think a reasonably well-developed sense of what, um, you know, tax and, and other strategies are available. Um, having said all that, the lowest hanging fruit the easiest things that you can do for accumulating your wealth properly kind of are in the domain of the accountant, of the tax act, to be even more specific. Um, you know, you could be very simple in terms of, you know, filing your taxes, putting money away in a sheltered plan. All of those are rules that are available for us to use. And the accountant, if, if nothing else, is a is a gatekeeper and a, and a, and a coach that should be able to help you go through understanding how to take income, um, you know, um, looking down longer, you know, how do we transfer assets to the rest of our family? Um, all of these things is sort of, we came up with it. They're statutory, they're in law. And they're not based on something chaotic like the markets. So your investments that you end up deploying, they're going to have variable returns. In most cases, tax strategies don't have variable outcomes. They have very predictable outcomes. And so if you don't have an accountant that you trust, or you aren't spending time working closely with that accountant, um, and that can be one of the same, uh, or two different issues, but that's a mistake to be made because those are the, you know, sort of the top, if you will, uh, in terms of the list of things you want to do, what the accountant will bring to the table are always going to be things that have very little risk because they're not based in variability. Um, and they're going to be, uh, for the most part, common sense, i.e. not particularly complicated or, or anything like that. So that's kind of what we, what, when we were talking, brainstorming about it, I think we came up with, which is listen to these professionals. They actually do have, you know, a, a great uh, overview of, you know, all of the things you can do that are available to every Canadian or may not be available to every Canadian, but certainly you can avail yourself of if it's applicable to you. And those are great wealth building strategies right out of the gate. Yeah, and I'm going to elaborate on that just a little bit. Um, you know, I, I believe you and I have talked about this and we agree that physicians have a tax problem. Like, I don't I don't believe in my mind, and some of you may argue with me, but I think we make a good income. So our problem is not making the income. Our problem is keeping most of what we earn. And so the tax portion here, which is the greatest destroyer of wealth, 
is where you mentioned it's the low hanging fruit. This is the first part that we can tackle to actually build wealth. And the second point you made is it's not variable. Like whatever tax strategies, income strategies, asset transfer strategies, uh, or tax maneuvers that are built in law, whatever we can do, the outcome and the and the impact is immediate. Um, I can see immediately how much I've saved, how much my corporation has saved, uh, how much more thousands I've kept in my pocket versus giving it to CRA. So those impact, those what I call loosely, you know, in in air quotes, returns. Those are immediate. Uh, I'm not I'm not expecting some sort of volatile return in the future had I invested it in the market. And so those are what we meant by you know not listening to your accountant. So now let's let's flip it. Let's flip the coin the other side and say. Well, you're you're listening too much to your accountant. What did we mean by that? You know, and with great respects to you know our colleagues in the accounting profession, there's all sorts of people uh, in every profession, and one of the first items that that sort of I have noticed, and I would caution people about is if your accountant has uh, specific beliefs about specific things or rules uh, about when things should be done or done or not done. I would be cautious. So we got a couple of examples that we talked about. So some accountants don't believe in using an RSP. Um, they don't believe that CPP is going to be available. Uh, they believe that they you should only take salary or you should only take dividends um, or you should never incorporate before you reach a certain income threshold. You know, all of those are not proper ways to advise a client. Um, there are no hard and fast things. Everyone should have those topics by way of example, those topics should be relevant to their situation. As in medicine, so you need to advocate on your behalf. And if someone says, we are doing this or we are not doing this, this is my advice, you should question it. And if the question or the answer, I should say to the question, looks like an opinion, for example, you know, I hate RSPs or I don't believe that the CPP will exist. Well, that's that's a hard, that's a very questionable position to take. Um, just given, frankly, the international uh, success and respect that the rest of the world has for our, our Canadian pension funds. Um, so there's those are some examples. So those rules are one. And then the other one that we talked about really is more understanding what subtype of accountant you've hired. <clears throat> so tax, which is what is most important to us wealth accumulating people, and in particular, we're not really like as a physician, you're not running an operating business in the same way that you are if you're making widgets. So in the accounting business, there are lots of really fantastic accounting professionals who have an assurance practice. And that assurance is business advisory. And although business advisory is certainly helpful, what, what really is needed for a wealth accumulation strategy are some sharp and smart tax strategies. Tax is a specialty in accounting. Accounting. It is not a broad, if you will, term that just sort of applies to sort of everyone um, who takes it. You need to have taken the advanced tax course. There are masters of tax uh, degrees, sorry, you can take as postgraduate studies. Those are people who have specialized and highly developed tax knowledge, tax knowledge. And those are the individuals that really are going to be the best at implementing and deploying, uh, you know, tax strategies. So, Really, just to recap, the first one is beware of sort of opinion of opinion based 
conclusions of things that you ask about. I think that's a red flag. And the second one is just understand who you're speaking with. And by the way, most firms will have a tax specialist at it. You don't need to deal with a tax specialist to get tax advice. The accounting profession has been really good at understanding that tax advice is not, it's not ongoing in the same way that, that filing your returns every year is, for example. And so a tax specialist will be brought in to work with you and the lead account, we'll call it. And then they may fade away for a while. And there's nothing wrong with that relationship as well. So understand a bit about their business and a bit about thing, how things are structured and make sure that you have access to somebody who has highly developed tax knowledge and has, a has frankly, a track record of deploying it. Well, I think you uh, nailed it on the head. Like I, before, I would say three years ago, before that, it was my impression that all accountants are created equal. I did not have this notion that there was such a thing as a tax accountant, which is a subspecialty. And so I thought, oh, well, accountants are accountants. They deal with taxes. Therefore, they're tax experts. So that's how I thought about accountants. And I think most of us, most of us physicians think of accountants that way. And so what you're saying now is, yeah, there are people who do assurance. There are people who do audit and there are people who do tax, specifically tax, which is a subspecialty of accounting. And so understanding that is important. Also understanding, you know, your accountant per se, like you say, they, some some people may work in a big firm where there are multiple uh, professionals, especially including a tax specialist. Some people work with um, firms that are a more what I call mom and pop, but I can't, it really doesn't do them justice when I call them mom and pop, but it's more of a individual or one or two type, uh, one or two uh, partners. And so they may not necessarily have that level of sophistication and expertise that you're talking about. When we're talking about, you know, tax accountants who are specialized, we're talking about people who work in typically the, the mid to um, high tier firms uh, and not typically the smaller, smaller, what I call again, mom and pop type of accounting firms. But uh, they those, those accountants may also um, seek the help of other tax accountants in other firms as well. So it, it's by no means exclusion, exclusionary, but you need to understand who exactly you are talking to in terms of your accountant, what type of specialty and subspecialty. And the reason we we talk about this is because, again, I'll come back to, to us physicians or healthcare professionals. Our problem is not the accumulation, but the distribution. And so the biggest destroyer of wealth is taxes. And having a good grip on that, which is the low-hanging fruit, is actually crucial to our uh, wealth building. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm going to double down on something you said, which is, um, you know, this concept of the mom and pop, uh, account, certainly you should not, uh, wave, if you will, kind of working with, with a smaller firm. Uh, I work with a small firm personally, um, and for our own, uh, in-house, uh, items. And we have two other firms that are larger, uh, that we work with and relationships with some of the national and international firms. It is, it is not the case that size will dictate anything in terms of quality. I think understanding a little bit about who your accountant is and what they have at their disposal is kind of the message here, which is, you know, do they have tax expertise? If they don't have it in-house, where do they get it? And you're exactly right. There are lots of smaller firms, what we'll call sort of local firms that deal with regional firms and their tax departments. 
uh, when they are uh, when they're presented with an opportunity or a transaction or a situation that a client has that's beyond their knowledge base. And there is a professionalism with accountants that allows them to, to, to work with each other in a very collegial fashion. So I think it's more just understanding what your specialty, what the person's specialty is who's sitting across the table from you and understanding what they're going to do when they're, when they're presented with, um, you know, your advocacy for yourself and how your wealth accumulation is really going to move forward. Exactly. Exactly. So I usually put it in, in ways that physicians would understand if a patient came to me and say, Hey, Vu, and, and I'm an emerge doc and a family doc, they say, Vu, how do I take the stone out of the left urethra, uh, you know, with this, with this dent? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. Let me refer you to a urologist. Right. And so that's how I uh, refer my clients or slash my patients to experts who know. And similarly, um, this should be done the same with, with your accountant. If your accountant is, is not per se the tax expert, then Hopefully that your accountant will refer you to those individuals or your accountant will get the the knowledge and the updated information from that specialist to help you in on in your in your question in your journey. So let's move on to point number three. Uh, which is a very, very interesting topic. I I think pe most people know that I love this topic. So here's the mistake. Underinsured and underinformed about how insurance will become useful later in your career and life. Now, we put that sentence that way because most of us think of insurance in one way, which is death insurance. And we think about it in the immediate or at least the very near term. And we don't think of insurance as a solution that can help us in the very near term to mitigate the risk of death, but how it could be used later in our career. And we talked about deemed disposition in our last episode, uh, which the first part has come out. But how does it help with deemed disposition later, very, very late in our career and in our life? So let's talk a little bit about that. So insurance is like is is sort of the number one unpleasant financial topic, I think, for everybody, um, because it deals with, first of all, an unsavory series of topics. So life, disability, um, these are all unpleasant things that nobody really wants to think about or talk about. And I think naturally, people think it won't happen to them. Now, everybody knows that they're going to pass away. Um, but people think that they won't become disabled and they won't, um, you know, they will, they'll figure out the problems that are created uh, with a, either an early, in the case of, a, you know, a death uh, that happens early, or that they will have figured out later on what to do, um, you know, when you, when you've, you know, reached the end of your life in a natural way and you pass away and, and you've got assets to deal with. So the first one being underinsured, I mean, the, there's, there's some, there's some, there are great tools available all over the place to give an individual a sense of what they would need to have insurance to replace uh, the risk of them not living um, and being able, let's say, to produce an income for their family, et cetera. More importantly, and a little bit, le a lot less, I would say, available are the types of tools that, that, that should be deployed so that people understand what insurance can be given or used or purchased, however you want to think about it. So that the the things that happen at the end of a natural life, so say age 90 or 95, when we've all lived a full life, how those are really helpful and available um, and uh, and do that. And so 
you know, if you are prone now to putting off the decisions about what you need to do at the end of your life, you're likely going to be prone to doing it the entire time through your life. And therefore, you will procrastinate on some of these decisions for quite a long time. So the, 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 what we wanted to urge when this topic popped up, we wanted to urge people to understand what was available, what they needed, and more important, how they could deploy it as a part of their wealth accumulation and preservation, rather than just thinking about it, which most people do, and understandably, you know, superficially insurance as a cost with a benefit that hopefully we never see. That's car insurance and auto insurance and, and term insurance, which is all of those are contingencies that we're planning. We hope don't happen. And we're only buying this if they do. Really long-term sort of wealth related insurance is actually trying to deal with a fact that we can't deny, which is if we live a full and happy life and we're lucky enough to accumulate some money, we've got a problem in how we distribute it and how it moves out. And insurance is a critical part of planning for that event, which we know will happen. And so that is why, you know, generally we thought people were underinsured because they don't want to really talk about it. They always want to buy, get get rid of the problem quickly and underinformed because it has an unsavory connotation, which is sort of not particularly well-earned. And there's lots of great professionals in the insurance side and frankly, in the accounting and even legal side who understand insurance relatively well and can bring that those various concepts to bear for, you know, the average, um, you know, individual we're speaking about, which in this case is medical professionals um, uh, in, in general. Yeah, I would, I would add to say, you know, under the underinformed is that most of us understand life insurance as term insurance, and we understand it as death insurance, and we understand it as a cost. So, and what's prevailing in I would say podcast land or Facebook land out there is really this concept of, you know, life insurance is really for death insurance only. And uh, at some point you should be self-insured. And so being under-informed for me means that it behooves us to understand the different usage and the different solutions insurance provide beyond just the death insurance. And so a lot of us, unfortunately, have fallen to that trap of understanding that life insurance is only for that one particular reason. And so I, I, I think what we're saying is understand the different solutions that life insurance can provide in your financial wealth building. Number four, physicians are victim of, quote unquote, get rich fast schemes, which I called dumb doctor deals. And, you know, it's funny, Jamie, there's actually this term out there called dumb doctor deals for a reason. Let's elaborate a little bit on that. There are lots of bad ideas in finance uh, out there. And unfortunately, the reason that I think doctors kind of gain this dumb doctor deal um, uh, sort of reputation, if you will, you know, you have a, a group of very highly intelligent people. I mean, you can't, you can't, that's an easy factor, which is relatively homogenous across physicians, you were, you were subject to a, a, an intellectual rigor, etc. And what I think happens is there is a way of presenting good ideas from a finance point of view, which is a pro forma, what's going to happen in the future. And those all look really good. Uh, and the problem with these pro formas and these deals is you're not you know, you're, you're, you got a, you've got the numbers in front of you. You can ask questions about the numbers, but sometimes 
what's behind those are very highly technical and really not necessarily uh, where it is. And I think if you have got a group of people who are highly intelligent, who are capable of understanding complex strategies, but are not trained to ask questions about the underlying assumptions, and they have a, a, an excellent income source, and they need in many cases to find smart things to do with those 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 earnings. You've got sort of a, a bit of a, of, a, of a recipe for bad things coming quickly and, and, and fast to people. And so a couple of things that recently that, a, that well, the big one that, that's no longer around that kind of closed down about 10 years ago was this sort of thing called the eight and 10 solution, which said, we promise you a 10% return uh, or sorry, an 8% return and a 10% loan. But because a loan is deductible, you'll actually make more back than this and that. And the government very clearly said quite early on, we're really not comfortable with this. And they continued to be promoted uh, until they were effectively shut down by some rule changes that CRA made. And then clients had to go and unwind them. Um, at the end of the day, that was not a particularly hurtful um, uh, strategy because it was a still an insurance policy and it still had value. But what was planned wasn't really what occurred. Um, if you go further back, there's all sorts of stories of tax shelters and and different deals that that were presented, and those have mostly and largely been shut down um, uh, this day and age. Uh, and so, those are the kind of things that that are out there that 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 are really problematic. We did talk about one other series, I guess, of things that are are available out there and regularly marketed to physicians. Um, one is an IFA, and the other was an IRP, and it's a way of leveraging an insurance policy. At the surface, sorry, actually, I should say at the bottom, at the foundation, both of these are viable strategies. They don't have really anything offensive about them in terms of they're not going to be attacked by CRA, et cetera, although you could aggressively deploy them and there would be a problem. The problem with them is um, they are ways of making uh, purchasing insurance contract look better than perhaps it already is. An insurance policy is an important part of your wealth accumulation strategy, but it is by no means the most effective investment you'll ever make. And I think the insurance industry might be guilty of over promoting the investment outcomes of insurance and frankly, not being modest and meaningful enough about just how impactful and effective a well-run, well-implemented insurance policy can be when it's funded properly and used properly. And so the IFA, which is the immediate financing arrangement, which has a great way of sort of facilitating premiums and it can be used very effectively. And the IRP, which is the insured retirement plan, again, uses insurance as a foundation. The problem is, is it, is it, is it illustrates using an evergreen loan to fund retirement. And the problem with that is when you're using debt far, far into the future, a half percent change in the spread of the assumptions that are made can vastly change the outcome. And I think that the IRP is great to know it exists that you can use it but it should never be the reason why you purchase insurance right so it is a possibility but it should not be the reason that you purchase insurance and so these are the kind of things that physicians are shown because they are high income earners they have problems with money meaning i've got to take some of this high income and put it somewhere smart and these all look like great solutions on the surface but they really do require some patience and some proper implementation to kind of make sure they're deployed properly. Yeah, I'll second that to, and to add, these are in itself not bad strategies. 
they become bad strategies when they're inappropriately understood. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of the times, like you say, it's a combination of having a high income and not looking what's underneath the hood. Uh, and not looking underneath the hood means what? We don't understand the assumptions. We don't understand the risk involved. And we don't understand the opportunity cost involved. And we never question the assumptions. So it's very funny because in medicine, we do that. But in medicine, we we understand risk benefit. We understand if I take regimen A, what does it mean? If I take regimen B, what does it mean? And what does it mean if I don't take regimen A or don't take regimen B? We understand all that when it comes to therapies, when it comes to chemo, when it comes to medication. So we all these concepts we already have. We've already understood and applied every day, but we don't apply it in our finances. And so not applying those principles and concepts that we already do every day in medicine and not applying that makes what dumb doctor deals true is because we 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 get focused on that shiny penny and we see how it shines but we don't ask the true questions behind the assumptions and the risk so be careful with that physicians out there number 5 let's we finally came to number 5 which is not having a financial plan so let's let's dive into that a little bit yeah i mean not having a financial plan uh, I mean, it's I I uh, it's near and dear to my heart. I'm a financial planner. Um, you know, I, I give you a quick history, I guess, which you didn't talk to. I actually did start in the insurance business right out of university, and the one thing the insurance industry is great at is asking questions. Um, there's two reasons. One of which is it's a long term purchase, and so you need to know what you're talking about. The other one, which is um, you know, might be a little bit more about sort of how the industry works, is it's a sales based industry. It really is, um, and for better or for worse. And so gathering information helps you sort of build a case to, to make a, a convincing argument to purchase a particular policy. That's not, it's neither here nor there. I would just say that's sort of more a buyer beware. So what I took out of my original training, and then when I moved over to a planning firm and I pretty quickly got my CFP, is a financial plan is pretty critical uh, for lots of reasons. But at the very least, it's a great line of best fit for where you're headed. So if I do a financial plan for you or anybody, Vu, I'm not really convinced that what's going to happen is what I'm putting on paper, but I'm really convinced it's going to be a great tool for you to understand where you're headed and for you to call me up in a month or a, or a year later and say, hey, look, we're going to make a change. How does that affect where we're headed? So those are the conversations that really can come out of a, of a financial plan. You'll be able to know if you're going to make it or not make it. You can build a plan and then go through some what if exercises. So a financial plan really gives you a conversation, a foundation for a conversation, both with yourself and with your advisors. We, we kind of, I, when we were chatting, we broke this up into four pieces. So you need to have a financial plan to know really four things. And once you know thing A, you can move on to thing B and so forth. So the first thing you need to know is if you're going to make it to retirement, right? And by that, I mean, is is I'm going to put a financial plan together and I'm going to make a recommendation that, look, if something happens to you or your spouse, you need to actually make it to retirement. So if there's an early death or a disability in the family, if you've not got an emergency fund saved away, 
if we haven't taken all the right tax steps, we're not even going to make it to retirement. So it sounds simple to, to, to say that a financial plan's primary goal is to get you to retirement. And by the way, retirement is a, a weird thing these days, because in the old days, we would retire at 65, get a gold watch and off you go. So retirement's not a date in the way that I'm using it, but but conceptually, getting you to the point where you are no longer dependent on your income on a day-to-day -day basis from employment. Once you've made it to retirement, the next thing you need to know is, are you going to retire successfully? So if you've got, again, number one is ticked off, then am I going to have all of the money that I can I need to be really comfortable with no questions asked? Am I going to be successful? And is it going to be efficient? Once I can answer the first two, then the next one becomes important. What happens when I die? Are things arranged in a way that makes things as efficient as possible? Do I know where money's going to go? Do I know what the impact of that is, et cetera? So that's A, B, and C. And then the last step is once you have made it to retirement and you've enjoyed retirement and you have unfortunately passed away, but we're all going we're all going there. After, how does that wealth and money impact others? Are you going to leave a family legacy and give it to your children? Are you going to leave a social legacy and give it to charity? What is it that you want to do? And what's the most effective way to do that? And that is what a good financial plan can do. It gets you through all of those stages conceptually. It gives you a nice roadmap that will, I guarantee you, change almost the minute the financial plan is written. Because you can't assume that, first of all, the markets don't get average rates of return. I, nor do you, earn an average income, et cetera. So I know that the financial plan is, is by design going to become obsolete as soon as something happens that I've not programmed in there. But at the very least, I know that it's going to give you a very, very good, should give you, I should say, a very, very good outlook on where you're going and what needs to be done to get there. Yeah, I think you, we talked about this in the past and you made it, uh, you, you made an analogy, I believe it was you, about the Apollo journey the apollo project they knew they were needed to get to the moon they launched the capsule and along the way they had to make 13 adjustments to get to the moon and so a financial plan is similar to that is you know where you're going you've planned it but they're absolutely a hundred percent that you're going to need to make adjustments along the way and um in the underlying the financial plan which you talked about a little bit, you know, in, in you know, subsection number three, which is death and minimizing taxes at death. But you need to make it to retirement. You need to retire successful and efficiently. And you need to understand mm -hmm. your legacy, all that within the context of tax planning, uh, because you want to get there. You want to be there efficiently and efficiently means keeping as much as you can in your pocket and not giving it away to CRA. So underlying the entire financial planning is the tax planning, which is why I think we came up with number one, number two, which is talk to your accountant. Yep, agreed. So uh, number six, not having a will, or at least not having an up-to-date will. Yeah, I mean, this this is one that's, that may not seem obvious in terms of, you know, uh, how it's going to impact your wealth accumulation. And frankly, it won't until something happens to you and it needs to be read out, which means you're no longer there or your spouse is no longer there. But the exercise of a properly done will is a very important one for the for the ultimate outcome, which is to have a document that dictates how your estate is going to be managed if something happens, how your children uh, will be, will, you know, what kind of guardianship they'll have, if there's any trust, trustees, et cetera. But inside of proper, and when I say proper, um, 
there are, just like we talked about accounts, there are dedicated estate law professionals who both draft these documents and more importantly, litigate estates. And if you ever speak to an estate litigator for more than about 15 minutes, I guarantee you, you will go and update your will. The propensity for estates to go sideways is quite high. And I think it's based on human nature. One of which is it's in the time of great stress and great sadness. And the other one is it's usually when money starts moving around. And unfortunately, those two things can cause quite, a, quite an issue. So a properly done will does one thing for your family, which is it takes away from that stuff occurring. The second thing it does is it allows you to understand some other strategies that may not have been brought to your attention by your other professions. So it's almost like a, it's not free, but it's an inexpensive way to find out what has not yet been done by your insurance advisor or by your financial or your, let's call it your investment advisor, your financial planner, or your accountant. So that estate lawyer, if they're properly educated, will or may, may or may not, bring to your attention strategies that are available that may, frankly, be very, very helpful to the project of accumulating assets over the, over the time being. So having that person, that conversation with that professional alone is worth the sort of the ticket, if you will, of having the will. Um, and then, of course, the outcome, which is the document that will dictate what happens if one of you or your spouse passes away, is also a, you know, a critical piece of, of where it is. So, um, you know, we, I think you should expect to pay between $1,500 and $3,000 for that will. So if you are looking at a will that's $500 or $1,000, I think that's probably not in your best interest if you have some complexity. And if you've got a corporation and you've got, uh, let's say, a, um, you're in your second marriage uh, or there's some other nuances to your planning, you can expect to pay more um, because you should. You're getting very complex advice on a very complex topics. Um, but at the end of it, what you will have is a foundation to your, you know, your estate and your and your financial planning, which you know will survive an unfortunate event. Um, that that sadly they do occur, um, and that's really the reason why not having a will is is a mistake. I think that lots of people make um, probably too often. We also mentioned within that category engage an estate practitioner instead of just a lawyer who does wills. What did we mean by that? Uh, yeah, so I mentioned it briefly. I think maybe at the beginning, and I not directly with this. So. There is a subset of lawyers. So there's there's corporate lawyers. There's family law. There's et cetera. Estate and trust and estate law is a is a very very highly technical, specialized, et cetera place. And in most cases, those practitioners not only write documents, but they also litigate estates um, on the other side. I.e., when beneficiaries are arguing with each other, so they see what can go wrong, and they can give you advice about your situation and how you can avoid certain things. If you've got a cottage and multiple people and different interests in competing. There's a lots of great advice just as a family that you might be able to get from those individuals who have seen and litigated the back end of these disagreements. And ultimately a will or a shareholders agreement or a prenuptial agreement, they're all documents that dictate how something is supposed to happen if there is crisis. And that having a practitioner who has seen what those crises mean is, is really valuable. So just knowing the fundamentals of a, of, a, of a will does not necessarily mean you're going to be the best suited lawyer to put that together. I would suggest that if you had, you know, which most of the people that we're talking to today do, which is a fairly advanced net worth, 
you're going to want to spend, I'm going to do some quick math, it's 0.0015% of your net worth to put together a proper will. Amazing. Okay. Mistake number seven. And this is really about mentality and mindset. If you are, if you are a DYIer, that means you you're the type of person who likes to do things yourself. You typically will adopt one type of thinking, one school of thought. And that unfortunately can lead you down the wrong path. So if you are a DIYer, don't let that mentality dictate your financial planning. So let's elaborate on that. Yeah, I think so. Maybe refreshingly, as a portfolio manager, what I'm not here to say is that you can't invest your own money. Um, there, there, I've got clients on the planning side who are very successful at doing, at, at putting together portfolios and managing them. It requires discipline. It requires that, but it's not beyond. It's not as though it's a magical skill set that no one can get without, uh, you know, you know, going through Hogwarts or something like that. However. When it comes to doing it yourselfing, you if you are predisposed that way, I think the natural inclination would be, well, I can do it myself. You know, I can do it yourself. Everything. I think that might be problematic. Um, you know, the financial planning software, for example, that that and there's you know dozens of different financial planning softwares with 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 different levels of complexity. These are computer programs that have hundreds of thousands of data points that are available for and outputs that are available for for people um there is tax and estate law and frankly a, a good planning professional and a good plan will also identify what we don't know and what we need to research and i don't think that doing it yourself is uh is a is, a, is an option that's available for you uh unless you have expertise in one of those areas. For example, you are an accountant or you are an estate lawyer and you do have exposure to some of this stuff. So I would suggest that if you want to be a do-it-yourself investment person, you may well be well positioned to get that done. But I would suggest that the money you save in not paying advisory fees, which is one of the primary reasons people do that, you would want to very be very careful to deploy some of those savings towards uh, planning professionals and accountants uh, and, you know, an insurance advisor and a lawyer who can walk you through what you might be missing um, uh, uh, on the planning side. Yeah, I've heard you said this many times to me, uh, Jamie, you can DIY your investment, but you cannot DIY your planning. And I think that really encapsulates the the whole idea. I mean, I, you know, I've sat down with people and who are very, you know, really I mean, here's a great example. I have an investment banking client who built a spreadsheet for themselves, their family, and it was perfect if all you wanted to do was an annuity calculation for where money was coming from. As soon as you introduce tax into a spreadsheet that someone has prepared, and again, it's not just average tax rates, but marginal tax rates, which change when incomes change, et cetera. As soon as you introduce tax, at a marginal rate, that almost always blows apart anybody's analysis, as good as they are at building projections financial. Then you introduce things like income splitting. So it's when I turn 65, I can start to split income with my spouse. Da, 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 da. That again makes the calculation that you could do about your cash flow in an Excel spreadsheet obsolete. And then you layer on other potential strategies and changes that can be made. 
I just don't think as good as you could be at an analysis that you could build build a spreadsheet that would able would be able to take that into account. And by the way, I am both, I think I'm relatively good at spreadsheets and I understand financial planning. I also know because I've dealt with some of the providers who've built these, these engines, I know that you cannot build a tool that successfully and meaningfully predicts your cash flow 25 years out with any more than a general amount of accuracy. I would say right. they're not going to be wrong directionally. They'll be correct but they will not be precise and you will not be specific and they will not identify areas where you can improve uh, your situation by making slight adjustments that you weren't aware of. Agreed. So mistake number eight, we're almost at the end here. So mistake number eight, the bigger shovel, the bigger hole. So what do we mean? I mean, as I mentioned earlier, uh, after 15, 20 years, you're comfortable in your skin where you are professionally you're starting to make a good income, which is uh, keeps going every year, and you're starting to accumulating more wealth. And so you're going to make more money, but you're going to tend to spend more as well. Sorry, this is a problem that's not specific to doctors per se, but, but it is generally the case that physicians are, you know, they're well rewarded for the rigor that they put into the first sort of 15 years of their education and career. And so the, the, problem that continues i think i think to emerge is there is the potential and everybody is different that as you make more money you spend more money and vice versa um and you get into sort of this doom loop um and whether it's a doom loop that has to do with you know how your household behaves i.e you're spending more than you're earning or whether it's a you know it's a vicious circle about the fact that you've sort of not saved enough and you've spent too much etc all of those are problems that get bigger when the numbers get bigger. And if you just add a zero, let's say, the problem can still be the same. And what ends up happening is this relief after finally, you know, after all the work that the physicians put into their career, the you know, money starts to come in and some physicians and uh, find, I find, I see some physicians prior to kind of planning first will go the other way potentially and um, dig a bigger hole and then they have to backfill later with with uh, sort of retroactive or reparative planning um, activities rather than proactive and and accretive planning strategies. I'm going to steal uh, the sentence you said, the doom loop. It sounds so much more dramatic than <laughs> the than the hamster wheel. So I, I tell people about the hamster wheel and once you're on the, ha on the hamster wheel, you can't really get off it or it's really, really hard to get off it. Uh, but the the doom loop, oh, that is so much better. I love it. I love it. So yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is, you know, we, we've all potentially been in that situation, but I think, you know, if you are, if you are transitioning from, you know, that building stage of your career and that building stage of your finances and, and, you know, there's an inflection where, you know, you, you, you finally get placed in the institution of your choice and the income is there, et cetera. You know, what we're trying to do is say, here are the mistakes that we see people make. It doesn't mean you're going to make that mistake. Another way to think of it might be when and if you are in that inflection point, not getting to the point where you are filling big holes with a big shovel will occur if you've kind of taken a lot of these steps we've talked about, which is having a bit of foresight and even maybe a bit of patience if I can kind of be a bit um, you know, prescriptive and doing some of these things first and then filling it in later with, with things that are more sort of fun and, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of, I think, the way to think of that. Agreed, agreed. 
So mistake number nine, uh, I think this is again a a mindset problem. Beware of your financial behaviors and how your subliminal message or messages is conveyed to your children. We had a few things. Let's elaborate on that. What did me? What did we mean by that when we come up with that answer? There's a softer side of planning and wealth management that is trying to understand once you've gone through all of the kind of logical steps of what am I doing to make sure I keep as much money as possible, that I think a good financial advisor and anybody, frankly, let's say with their head screwed on right, needs to bring to bear, which is having money is a problem. So while we're while we're growing our wealth, it's a problem because we want to make sure we keep as much of it as possible. But there's the issue of, and we talked about this, um, you know, because I think in the context of what are the mistakes people made mid-career, you had, you had said that there, and I did not know this, by the way, but there are, you know, there's a sort of a disciplinary protocol if a physician, let's say, uh, kind of has fallen a little bit behind in maybe their education or maybe just their finances, and uh, they need to be sort of re-educated and supervised. So there is the potential for us to do things wrong in every single industry, et cetera. So it's not pointing at physicians, but this is where this conversation came up. And we we just wanted to make sure that we were aware of the softer side of planning, which is there are human beings that are affected by all these decisions we make. And so, you know, we thought that we would, I think we were generalizing about what happens to a physician um, in particular and where you become, you know, an unwitting sort of um, transistor of not maybe the best messages, which is, if you think about everything we talked about, it's about optimizing and maximizing and making more money and keeping more, et cetera. So while you're doing that, let's be aware that what our kids are seeing may be very different. They may see us spending money. They may see us talking about money. They may see us transitioning or, or kind of uh, perpetuating behaviors that come from really good places. So uh, your point was spoiling them by helping them. Um, you know, you've, you and every other physician spent many, many years, you know, back through to high school, um, drilling down into making sure that you got where you wanted to go and kind of um, getting through those challenges. And so I think there's a mindset of like, I don't want, you know, I don't want my kids to go through what I had to go through. So that sort of potential of sort of using your financial means to uh, pave a road that's too uh, easy for your children. Um, so those those kind of concerns that you know a physician might have, frankly, in our industry in the financial services industry, we're relatively high income earners. Uh, it's a concern that I have. Yeah. So those are the those are the mistakes I think that we high income earners, and I think that in this case we're all the same. But we are in danger of making. Doesn't matter if you're a doctor or not. Um, but as we, you know, we spoke, we talked it through. We came up with this is a pretty important one that we thought we would want to make sure in our financial planning and in all of the thinking that we did about what we're doing with our money. I felt, and I think you feel the same way, and I know you do because we talked about it. Um, that we want to make sure that when we're doing all of these smart things, we're not unwittingly doing some dumb things at the same time. Um, to these, to, in, in the case, really the people closest to us, which is our family. Yes, and and uh, we did we did talk about you know the how our behavior or how our attitude or how we think about money will that will 
create messages down to our children. And we want to make sure that they understand the right message and that we're not giving them the wrong the wrong message by doing what we're currently doing. So mistake number 10, we're at the end. And mistake number 10 is not having a pension. And so let's dive a little bit on that. And what did we mean by not having a pension? Because people will say, well, I have an RSP. Is that a pension? Or do we really mean a pension pension, which is <laughs> what's written in the Income Tax Act as defined benefit or defined contribution? So what did we mean by not having a pension? Well, I mean, I think we can start really simple, which is, you know, there are, you know, in the worst instances, there are people who have not saved anything, um, who have spent all their money or who have, you know, had an unfortunate series of events or one event that's, that's led them to that. But not having money separated from current spending and earmarked for future spending would be the broad definition of not having a pension. Then you bring it into focus with the higher income earners that physicians are. And then you further refine that focus by the fact that if you are, in fact, if you for the for a long period of time, let's say multiple years, are earning a high income, there are a lot of strategies that you can deploy, which give you a pension, um, whether it's a pension in the form of what's defined in the act or other tools, you should use all of the tools at your disposal and you should use you know proper friend, you know planning etc to make sure that you've got a pension set aside a proper pension which is uh you know so the the ppp a personal pension plan um which is which uses a defined benefit formula is a great way of doing it uh if you have again sort of more income and more surplus left over managing those surpluses with uh, life insurance is another strategy so the pension the pension concept, meaning it's sort of what I originally defined it, which is taking money from today and setting it aside for tomorrow is what I don't think is, I, I, we thought wasn't being done effectively enough. And it doesn't just speak to one vehicle, right? It speaks to knowing how many great vehicles are available and then how do you put them in place in your particular situation? That's correct. Um, I think that was the the intent of that mistake number 10 that we wanted to bring up is that not setting aside today for something tomorrow and there are many solutions to this one of them as we mentioned was the ppp there's also the ipp there's also the insurance uh, solution and there's also a uh, beyond that the rca retirement compensation arrangement so different solutions for tomorrow. We've done the, plan, the 10 mistakes. Let's review them quickly. So top 10 mistakes made by mid-career summarize here. Number one, not listening to your accountant. Number two, listening to your accountant. <laughs> Number three, underinsured or underinformed about how insurance will become useful later in your career and life. Number four, physicians fall victim of get rich uh schemes, get rich fast schemes, uh, and beware of dumb doctor deals. Number five, not having a financial plan. Number six, not having a will or an updated will. Number seven, if you're a DIYer, don't let that mentality dictate your financial planning. Uh, the more money, number eight, number eight, the more money you make, the more you spend. 
So you have a bigger shovel, you tend to dig yourself a bigger hole. Number nine, beware of your financial behaviors and how your messages is conveyed to your children. And number 10, making sure that you have a pension plan for retirement. So those are the the 10 mistakes made by physicians in mid-career. I think that's a very long list, and we talked a lot about uh, all of them. Um, anything you wanted to add, Jamie, before we wrap up this conversation? No, I mean, this there was a this was the brainstorming for this that we did together was fun. Um, so you know, as you could see, we we did prepare the list before. and uh, and by the way, for what it's worth, uh, I'm always impressed by your preparation given this is your this is your side hustle. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think the the you know, it's where I come from, but planning, but all of these have a planning flavor to them, which is, Thinking through the project of wealth management is something that requires kind of a fair amount of work. It doesn't require a lot of physical work, but there is some investigation to be done. And these mistakes are the mistakes of a lack of investigation, uh, of putting maybe too much faith in people maybe when you shouldn't have, and writing off the responsibility of certain things to others. So, you know, it does require understanding who your team is. I do think that you should have, you know, a group of three or four people in each of those different areas that you can call and speak with and who are familiar and conversant in what's going on in your life. And if you don't have that relationship, then, you know, I'm not one to recommend you find someone else, but I think there are people out there who will be genuinely interested in finding the right solution for you and your and your practice and your wealth management. And if you're not getting that sense, then I think it's time to think about looking for someone who can. Agreed. Um, I think it's important to have the right individual, the right experts behind you. Uh, supporting you and guiding you. You know, I always I always chuckle when I see these DIY commercials, whether it's Wealth Simple, whether it's Quest Trade, whether it's another one, you know, uh if you did if you just did this, you'd re, you'd retire happy. And it make it so simple and uh we're all going to get there, we're all going to be 30% richer. And you know, when I when I see that and I now understand the amount of work that takes to get there, I just kind of chuckle and say, well, you know, easy solutions and simple solutions really are never the solution. So the planning is really important behind all this. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jamie, listen, we've uh, talked for an hour and a half. You uh, Can you believe that? So <laughs> we've had too much fun. So well, thanks again for having me. Uh, this is always, uh, I really enjoy these discussions and, and the thinking that goes into them. Um, and I do really hope that the that, that people that, that are your listeners enjoy and appreciate the work you put into this stuff because it's it's good i i i think the podcast is a it's it's, this it's an interesting niche that you're occupying i know you have some other colleagues that are doing the same type of thing um but uh i think it's a good service um and an interesting place to put yourself on behalf of your your colleagues so so thanks for having me and and thanks just for 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 making this happen oh and i i want to thank you i don't i haven't thanked you enough for coming on the show, uh, chatting with me, going through this list, and but more importantly, sharing your expertise and your wisdom with the uh, wide audience of the podcast of the podcast world, uh, because we definitely need, uh, need this. And you know, this is a side hustle for me, uh, a side hustle that doesn't pay yet. But you know, I, I, but I'm learning tons as I'm going through this. So, Jamie, thank thanks a lot for for um, teaching us all these good points. 
I hope you guys enjoyed that. It was a long podcast and there was a lot to unpack. If necessary, please listen to it one more time, two more times, three more times to really grasp the concept. And I really would like the audience to listen to that and say, well, exactly which one did I make? Which mistake did I make? And take the time to correct it. I'll be honest with you, when I started learning this, it took me five years to reorient my life the way that I want it to be. Uh, and when, when I say reorient, I was talking about my financial life and my financial well-being. So it does take time, but um, there's no procrastination. Do it. Do it now. Do it yesterday. I also want to take this opportunity to add a shameless plug. Myself, Dr. Michael Long and Dr. Roger Sen, both of whom has appeared on my podcast, we are organizing our first financial literacy conference for physicians in Toronto, North York. The conference will be called Code Green, Financial Literacy for Physicians and Dentists. And so uh, please save the date. February 2nd, 2024 in North York, Toronto. It will be a one-day conference. It will be a major jam. We'll be talking about all things financial for healthcare professionals, uh, from assets to investments to real estate to insurance to mortgage, everything that physicians and dentists and healthcare professionals need to know. So please save the date, February 2nd, 2024. It's going to be an all-day event plus a wine and cheese at the end for all of us given the opportunity to network and chat. So please save the date February 2nd, 2024. I will end this the same usual way. If you have any comments, any feedback, please send me an email at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. And looking forward to talking to you guys next time. Signing off. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.